talking to Alex McElroy, whose debut novel, The Atmospherians, is available at Library St. Henry Books. Alex McElroy is a non-binary writer based in Brooklyn. They received their MFA from Arizona State University and their PhD from the University of Houston. Their writing has been supported by the Bread Loaf Writers Conference, the Tin House Summer Workshop, the Sewanee Writers Conference, and the Elizabeth George Foundation. The Atmospherians is their first novel. Sasha Marcus was once the epitome of contemporary success, an internet sensation, social media darling, and a creator of a high-profile wellness brand for women. But a confrontation with an abusive troll has taken a horrifying turn, and now she's at rock bottom, canceled and doxxed online. Sasha confides in her oldest childhood friend, Dyson, a failed actor with a history of body issues who hatches a plan for Sasha to restore her reputation by becoming the face of his new business venture, The Atmosphere, a rehabilitation community for men. Based in an abandoned summer camp and billed as a workshop for job training, it's actually a rigorous program designed to rid men of their toxic masculinity and heal them physically, emotionally, and socially. The Atmospherians peer straight into the dark heart of wellness and wokeness, self-mythology and self-awareness by asking what happens when we become addicted to the performance of ourselves. Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Um, I want to start off by addressing the mood of the novel a bit. There's a certain grittiness to the novel one that actually matches up to the kind of grittiness I feel like we all associate with toxic masculinity, was it a dark place to be writing this novel? Uh, yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, no, I think it definitely felt like um, a lot of like sort of being in this book was a fairly, um, fairly dark a lot of times and fairly, which is something that maybe we'll get to this later, but I think, um, which is one of the reasons why I think a lot of my prose is stylized in a certain way that it is, um, which is because so much of my subject matter can be fairly dark. And so I like to look at other ways to kind of combat that or sort of contrast that. I think some of the ways I get around that are through either prose style, um, through jokes, things like that, through like other sort of tricks of language to try to like let some levity in and some air in. Um, but absolutely, I think it was something that, um, in its earliest phases, it felt like it was just dark and dark. And a lot of the work of revision was just trying to sort of really lighten this mood and trying to find ways again to just sort of like bring in more air, bring in more light into this novel. Um, and I think that's probably just based on the subject matter itself, that um, it wasn't really something that I could be totally like slapdash or like jokey about. Um, so, yeah. So if I'm hearing correctly, there's an acknowledgement that the the theme of the book is obviously sort of gritty and heavy, but that you did actively try to put in some lightness into it um, with that in mind. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think this is because I'm fairly of two minds and a lot of things. I feel like my mind is either like extremely dark or like extremely like frivolous. Um, and those are like my only options for myself. Uh, and that was really apparent in writing this book. So yeah, the, the subject material was definitely gritty and was definitely something that I was trying to get at when I was just writing about these men that are in the camp and writing about their histories and writing about um, the backstories of Sasha and Dyson. Because I think part of it, 
I needed to understand like, what is it that would allow for the characters to do the things that they do? Like what sort of leads someone um, in Dyson's case to, to start a cult? What sort of leads someone into that state of desperation uh, that they're willing to do just about anything, whether that's the men who decide to go there or if it's Dyson for starting it or even like Sasha for agreeing to join on with Dyson. And all of that, I think in order to happen, um, normally things aren't going that great uh, when people are pushed to this sort of level of desperation. So that was definitely, I think, a necessity for the plot that they were able to sort of go to those lengths and sort of like, um, yeah, pushed as far as they were and sort of why that greediness was so important. Um, the first paragraph of chapter five, which is page 27 for me in the, the arc, I don't really ask authors to read normally, but I would actually like you to read this passage if, you, if you'd be willing. Of course. Yeah. So this is when Sasha and Dyson first arrive at the atmosphere. Um, so I'll just read this opening paragraph. Dyson parked in front of a bare brown barn in the center of a clearing. Yellow crisp grass widened out to a crown of pine trees. Their tips knifed into a stony sky. In front of the barn were two stubby sheds so lacquered and bright they reflected the sun like shields. The front of a school bus nosed out from behind the barn. A gurgling generator unloaded a warped column of smoke that rose like a worm inching into the sky. Johnsonburg, the closest town, barely a blink on the side of the road was 20 minutes away by car. Standing in the center of the clearing, I felt the grip of isolation, like a mouse in a fist. So the reason I wanted you to read that specific paragraph is I wanted to give the listeners a sense of your prose in this novel and exactly that, the utter desolation it conjures. And I feel like that paragraph, you know, as short as it may be, um, certainly gives that sense. Much like the office novel, uh, the internet novel, the capitalist novel, Having a plot driven by a culture of wokeness similarly seems like a very now, very current moment for the novel to take up. What drove you to this place? And more specifically, what was the appeal for you in living here in fiction? So in living in this sort of like world of wokeness, I mean, I think one of the main things that I was really fascinated with in this book um, it's just a question of like, I'm, I'm going to sound like a, like a 20 year old, like philosopher, but like in the question of like goodness or, and what it means to be good in the world right now. And I was really fascinated by what it means to be good when goodness seems to be quantified by likes and by attention. Right. And what the, what happens to our understanding of like being a good person in the world um, when we are sort of trying to be good and also sort of receive attention. I think Dyson is sort of the, um, a great example of this because he's someone who by every, by what he tells himself, he thinks that he wishes to do good by the world, that he wants to save the world, you know, fix men, um, save the world essentially. But he does it in a way that is most invested in allowing him to regain an acting career in a way that will allow him to sort of regain power in a way that will give him more attention. So it's not so much about just doing good in the world, but it's about how that good can also bring attention to the person who is doing it. And I don't know if that is like necessarily a moment of the now. I mean, something I've been thinking a lot with this question of the internet novel is how is the internet in many ways just like the place where we are? 
So it's not so much that um, I intentionally was like, I need to write about the internet. It's just like where I spend way too much of my time. So it's something that is like, unfortunately on my mind a lot. So this question of like who we are in performance and how we perform and appear to be good people, uh, I think is important to an internet novel, but it's important to all novels. And I think it's like, I'm thinking of, you know, Sheila Hattie's How Should a Person Be, right? Like how should, how can we be a good person and also be an artist, right? How do we sort of develop this um, self-identity? And for the internet novel, I think that is just where are we performing and where are we creating this self-identity? And oftentimes it is a very public performance that might be fractured and cleaved away from who we might be offline. And I think that real distinction between online and off makes it appear as if this is something newer than I think it probably is. When the only difference that me, maybe we have had in the past is like in our house versus like outside of our house. Um, so now that has just sort of collapsed in a strange way because we can be outside of our house while we're also inside of our house. Um, so this feels like especially, I don't know, just eerie or something feels more like intensified and pronounced about the questions of performance and the questions of like, yeah, how we how we are in the public sphere. Um, it's interesting, though, because, you know, you write about toxic masculinity specifically. It's sort of the whole thing of the whole book. So I feel like I just I need to ask you the classic question that's like posed to all novelists, which is, you know, do you believe that the role of fiction is in relation to empathy? I guess, where do you stand in that conversation? Yeah. So is that a question of like how like do I think that it's OK to empathize with people who have been toxic in this book? No, or, it's a question. Okay. Yeah, it's a yeah, question yeah. of um, of all the things you you came to this. You're a writer, right? You came. You know this. I think yeah. you came to this text with a plot, and I don't think it's a coincidence that the plot um, explores the you know in, inherent morality and, as you've pointed out, the goodness of these characters or lack of goodness many times. And this yeah. is a kind of age-old conversation when it comes to novels in the first place. This is the role of fiction. This is what novels are meant to do. They're supposed to awaken empathy. And maybe it is interesting to think about the kind of toxic characters that you've written um, and whether or not they deserve empathy, but also whether or not you decided to put them in this place of fiction because fiction is where empathy is best explored. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm still unpacked. That's such an incredible question. And I guess I wanted to like engage with them in this way and engage with uh, the men like, I mean, it, it seems like, I don't know. I mean, there's so much there. Um, so I'm trying to like sort of uh, piece by piece, like sort of move through it. Um, so I guess I was like, fiction is like, like I wasn't deciding that like, these are the people who I like want to empathize with. And I think this is like a really, um, this has been like a really difficult question for me to think about like how, how a novel evolves, right? And um, did I, you know, I wasn't sort of like picking up the like building blocks of like subject material and things like that. I think so much of um, my creation of this book was like really reactive and I would start moving in one direction. I mean, it started very much with like the characters' voices. And from there I needed to figure out like, where are we going from there? What are they actually doing? What is happening? Um, and then I think when I decided to like sort of play out these questions in fiction, as in like, is this a place where empathy can be had? Um, is this a place, I guess the question of empathy 
to be honest, like it's, it's, I'm so shaken up by this question because I guess it's something that didn't really um, occur to me as I was like writing this book. And it could be because I was writing it in the midst of like the backlash to empathy. Like we had um, <laughs> sort of like uh, decided as a culture that like maybe David Foster Wallace was wrong and that we should like not um, lean into this like extreme empathy. And we're on this sort of other side of it, right? And we're in the midst of like, you know, who was receiving too much empathy and those further questions. Um, so I think it wasn't something that was like initially occurring to me. I guess I thought about it more about the ideas of like what to do with people who have done wrong. And it very much seemed like a book of ideas for me in like a lot of ways. And I think I'm stuck. Um, it's just how my brain works. I think through ideas, I like an idea and then I follow it out or I hear a voice and I like it and I follow it out. And for this, I was very interested in just what would have to happen for men to change and what would have to happen for them to actually care enough for change to change for them to like want to do this. And that was so much related to the character of like Dyson as I was thinking about like, Dyson I think sort of embodies someone who um, like is looking for the quickest possible answer based on the um, like, he knows the correct way to go about things, but he is looking for the fastest sort of shortcut for it. So he seems to be someone who like skims the internet and sees like men are bad, we need to find a way to fix them. And he looks for a way to figure out how to do it. Um, even though he does it in the most, um, I think, damaging way. And in a way that, as I've said earlier, like continues to center himself. So that was another question as well. Like if men are actually going to wish to reform, is it going to be in a way that is absolutely centering themselves in this project? Um, and that well, I was writing it at the same time as a lot of um, groups that were really focused on this outside of my novel were occurring like every man um and you know the mankind project things like that these like or like the sort of thing that was lampooned and fleabag right these places where men came together to like shout at each other and sort of get out their rage and i was really curious about what these spaces could actually do because i think even when you get in those spaces you forget they're still all run by men right and that they're still um these spaces that are fairly isolated um from other perspectives um so when i was thinking about empathy in this book i was thinking about what type of empathy is going to be given to the characters and where is sort of empathy going to be presented and that's something that i think is like really comes up in like the reconciliation chapter right where all the men talk about their backstories and how they came to this and that question of empathy there was i think a lot about like where will the men of the novel empathize with themselves and what does change actually look like to these people and i think one of the things that i was really grappling over is like what does the actual change and what does the performance of change looks like. And I think something like the reconciliation chapter is absolutely about the performance of change and about the performance of apology, I think I would say, and which is like quite literally um, men like on a, uh, on sort of a stage apologizing for what they've done wrong. Um, and I guess that connects sort of to empathy, um, even though it's like not exactly the terms that I was thinking of it in. So that I think is yeah, I feel like I feel totally like thrown through a roller coaster with that question. I mean, it's it's really exciting to get it's and it's just so surprising to me that that's not how I was thinking of this book. Like, yeah, so that's really it's exciting to hear it in those terms. It's exciting to hear that you weren't thinking about it in those terms too. I think because so much of the rhetoric behind literature 
cultivates this idea that that is what it's supposed to be for empathy. And so for you to come in and write this, you know, I think fair to say sort of controversial novel um, in this present time that we're in is that you can't see, I just made a face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think it's fair yeah. if you spend the rest of your book tour press tour, or, you know, just, you know, celebrate your book um, in the way that I am going to treat you. this hour. Yeah. But yeah. at the same time, I wanted to do it because I, I want to know you are this yeah. person who wrote this book. And I know there's this remove between the author and fiction, like right. you aren't necessarily what you write, but at the same time, I feel like you are, I, I keep, I say this to a lot of writers that I talk to and, and they, they, they feel, um, they relate to the analogy of like this, these books being their baby, being a part of them. So in that way, they are reflections of the author themselves. So I mean, what that reminds me of, I mean, during my last year of my PhD, I took a class in which we only read each other's novels. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I left that class being like, there was nowhere to hide in a novel. Like eventually, um, like I feel like the reader, like when I read my own novel, it's like I'm sort of walking with a flashlight and like, it's or like, like, like the end of the Blair Witch Project, right? But like you sort of can't see what's going on, but like some sort of the self pops through. And I, I don't, I don't close a book thinking, okay, well, this is that person, but I definitely, yeah. cl especially depending on 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 the quality of the book, I yeah. do close it thinking, well, I want to talk to this person about these ideas yeah. because clearly this person is invested in these ideas, and I'm interested in these ideas. So this is the person to talk to about it. Which brings me to maybe my yeah. unfortunate like moral standing that I'm going to put you on, you know, I don't right, think let, let's do it. <laughs> it's not, it's not yeah, as yeah, intense yeah. as I'm making it sound, but no. um, I don't think you're very Saint Sebastian right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you personally believe in the cult that D Dyson does, you know, the atmospherians as the best way to address toxic masculinity. But at the root of it is this very real understanding that part of what contributes to toxic masculinity is a huge social failure to educate men to form a more intuitive and healthy relationship to their feelings. So on page 95, how many of you have hurt people emotionally, physically, because you couldn't handle your feelings? I believe Dyson asked this question. And on page 112, there's a chapter called What the Men Needed to Know. And you know, you have Sasha, the female character, writing out this list of what men need to know. And my question is, do the men need to know? I'm asking if you think, and it's interesting because you brought it up yourself that you were interested in the conversation of change. I'm asking if you think change comes even after that knowing, because I feel like we are at a time where these things that they should know is kind of being yelled out all the time to everyone, including to yeah. them. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying that that's misguided. It's, it's, it's happening for a reason and needed to happen for a long time, but I'm not sure if the problem is a lack of knowledge per se, you know, this title of what the men needed to know. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So is the knowing, how, how much is the knowing is the answer to this or yeah. to, to this change? Yeah, I feel like I'm going to bug my, my press and have them change it to what the men needed to absorb. Um, <laughs> yes, like, yeah. right. <laughs> um, so uh, no, just sound a little bit. I mean, I think that's so, that's so astute, right? Like we live in a world in which like sort of like, you know, it's the age of like the chant and the sort of the retweet, right? Where like mm -hmm. the same people can say the same thing over and over again. Um, and like, that's sort of like your which is sort of fascinating because like when you go to a lot of protests, right? Like the goal is to say the same thing over and over again. So I don't see like necessary. And oftentimes when like you're at a protest, um, what you're saying can be like fairly obvious, right? You know, and like, and so I'm, I'm interested in like 
maybe it's that it seems more powerful when you are around other people, right? And when there's something sort of embodied about that in ways that there isn't, um, when it's just something like, um, you know, uh, don't believe not all men or something like that, or like, yes, all women, right? Um, you know, so those sort of like things that are fairly um, passed around a lot. Uh, on the question of knowledge, I mean, I think, I feel like a lot of what you said answered what I would like say for myself, right? I mean, I think it's, I absolutely believe in change, but I absolutely believe that people don't change until they are forced to. And by forced to, I mean, that comes in um, either through, they have decided that they have reached a point in their lives where they really, they either care enough about the people who they have, um, or they just care enough about people. Like, I don't even think it needs to be that they care enough about people they've hurt. I think that they just legitimately care enough about people in order to not want to be the type of person who hurts other people um, and that they're going to absorb and sort of try to um, change their actions based on the sort of repetitive things that, you know, they might hear, right? And I think that that type of change is absolutely possible. I guess part of my question and part of like what I'm thinking about in this book is like, what are the methods to go about doing it? Um, and again, when I brought up like men's groups, like um, mankind projects, stuff like that, like part of what troubles me about those groups, like, I mean, I'm of two minds about, that, right? There's like the sort of the, the messages that get passed around, like it should not be the responsibility of women to educate men. Um, and that sort of, uh, that equation is used sort of for many different um, ways in which uh, marginalized people should not be um, teaching privileged people about their privilege or, um, and so, but I think, again, when you end up in spaces that are like strictly of the privilege, like what is, what does accountability look like in that space? Um, and that I think can be um, just a real, I don't really know what the way to bridge this, this problem is, right? And I think that, again, I, I'm remembering your, your interview with Tori Peters and so much of what she said in that interview was like, you know, I, I wrote this book because I had questions, right? And I resonated so much with that because I wrote this book because I don't know the answer. Like if I knew the answer, I would like, you know, find an investor and like go <laughs> um, convince them to, to pay me a bunch of money to do this, but I don't know the answer. And I think um, that, you know, every, every sort of like, what Dyson is doing, again, like when I said that earlier, like Dyson has a sort of understanding of what is right. He just has no idea how to do the right thing, right? Or he knows what like the end point should be, but has no idea how to get there. Um, and that's the same thing for determining how these men should change, right? He's just like, we need to make them better, but he's not a therapist. He's not trained in any of this. Um, he's just sort of, you know, going about it. He's treating it like, it's a gig economy job, essentially. Like I can figure out a way how to do this. I can teach myself. He's doing the like learn to code of transforming men. Um, and, um, and I think that that's what's, I think in sort of Dyson's ethos is a sort of problematic like ethos of like the hustle economy in a lot of ways and the sort of shortcuts that that engenders and that that inspires, yeah. Does that answer? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it, there's a lot to unpack there too, yeah. which is a great answer. Um, have you ever been afraid of being canceled? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite things to do, there was that site. Um, are you canceled? It got taken down. 
Mm-hmm. I think my friends and I would just put each other in and see if we were canceled. I never was, but um, a lot of friends apparently. Um, so yeah, um, I mean, I I, I joke, a bit, but I mean, it's it's interesting though, be too, because I um, you know, alluded to alluded. I said that this yeah. kind of controversial book, and you sort of listeners can hear, but you kind of made a face, you like you were taken aback, like that this might be considered a controversial uh, book. Yeah, um, and at the same time. I, asking if you've ever been canceled it's like you're putting yourself out you're putting your voice out there in a um precarious conversation does that come with any concerns i i was like you know i want that like um book anxiety plus um (laughs) yeah yeah, I mean it's like I saw this meme that was like Pfizer's like a body high and Moderna's just like a chill out (laughs) like it was just making a joke (laughs) about the different highs of this vaccine and I guess yeah what was your high for this book what was my high I mean I, (laughs) I mean I think on the question of like cancellation um I think that cancellation is accountability by another word, right? And um, and I believe fully in accountability, right? And if um, it's fit, if I'm fit to be held accountable, then yeah, um, that's the way of the world. On page 190, absolution has to be earned and there are consequences for treating forgiveness like a rare and finite source. To me, this portrayed redemption as the idea where you've hurt someone, you've hurt mm-hmm. someone, that's it, it's done. And you should and can do better, but there's no end point you ever reach where you unhurt someone. You will sort of spend the rest of your life earning this forgiveness. Is that a fair read? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I think in that section, what I was thinking about, without giving too much away, I mean, absolution has to be earned, yeah. Um, and I think that that, I think that's one of the questions with something like, um, I mean, I am not a scholar of restorative justice. Um, so I... I mean, you're a novelist, so that's debatable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I work with um, profound justice of the page, I guess. Um, yeah, so I, I guess um, these questions of accountability, I mean, what I find really interesting in them, and a lot of the questions of, like, you know, you expect someone to go away forever, something like that, like, you know, one mistake, like, someone's... Um, careers over like I think that people can try to enact change right that I think that the problem with those conversations is that people are looking for shortcuts they just want to like disappear for like a couple of weeks and then come back and they'll be like why are you still mad at me right it's like you know if um, it's I think it's just like a basic like if you make a mistake and like you know don't say yeah I'm sorry I'll do better next time right and like actually like try to do better and like I've been mad at people in the past and I've been upset with them and I can like you know welcome them back into my life um but it might take me a little while right and so I think it's time and it's also I want to like learn how to trust them again and I think that learning how to sort of be trusted through the larger society um I think it's something that's missing from a lot of these conversations. It's almost like an immediacy on both ends, right? On the, on the, on the person who feels hurt and the person who has hurt. So there's this one person saying, okay, I went away for a bit. Are you over it now? And then there's the person who said, I will never forgive you. So I will never be. And both of that is quite extreme in its own way. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of this. I'm trying to respond to this in a way that I don't sound like an Instagram therapist. Um, and, Which we uh, all follow. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Like, I, yeah, let's not pretend that I am not an astute follower of Sit With Wit. Right? Um, so, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, both of those are extremes, but I think my Instagram philosopher self would say something like forgiveness and forgetting are two different things. Right. And I think that that is also like you can forgive someone without, you know, forgetting the ways that they hurt you. Right. And I think that that seems to be like the bridge between the two of those. Right. But I also think that you can choose to not forgive someone and not talk to them again, you know, and that also um, I mean, this is going to be the the stupidest analogy in the world. I hope you're ready. I hope your listeners are ready. Um, I, I think a lot about the animated show Recess. Um, that Love I watched, Recess. Yeah, I watched Obsessed. Recess all the time as a kid. I forget who. There's the episode where one of the characters, um, like the kid with the hat, right? Like the main boy. TJ. TJ. Okay. He's like trying to get this new kid to like him throughout the entire episode and the new kid like doesn't like him at all um and then eventually the new kid's like do you even like me and then tj is like no i don't um you know and they're like then why should i like you right and and that i think is um in some ways a question of like i see that almost speaking to this like if someone decides to not forgive you for something that you have done that i think does not mean a that is not an objective and to someone's character, I guess I can say. And what, what I think about that is the subjectivity between sort of liking someone and allowing someone to be in their lives. Um, like with person A, who might not like me, I might not like them, and it may be best if me and person A don't talk, but that doesn't mean that I can't have a relationship with person C, right? And I think that a lot of this, um, I think even questions of like toxicity, like in the language that we use it, like, you know, we think of this as someone who is like radioactive and sort of like, you know, giving off these, um, this energy field that might be like harmful to everyone and uh, people can be harmful to everyone in their lives like those people do exist but I think there are also um there are ways in which like the end of one relationship does not preclude one from having relationships with other people in your life in the book Sasha's career blows up because of a specific comment made on the internet and you know the consequences that follow after this is a very serious internet (laughs) how much of the internet do you take seriously? And I guess my follow-up question to that was if clickbait is inherently unserious, why build a very serious plot around it? I guess I was interested in the ways in which questions around cancellation eventually come back to the most marginalized people. And I wanted to intensify that through the character of Sasha, right? So when we have oftentimes like cancellation is seen as a problem when, you know, Tucker Carlson says like, um, we can't just get rid of these people, right? Or like, you know, we have to um, understand that people make mistakes. And I think that for people who are like, you know, rich, you know, conservative white people, it doesn't really affect them in that way. But I think the language of that, I was interested in how that would be adopted for by a like right wing um how the language that was sort of like created as a like um way to protect marginalized people would eventually be adopted and used against people even more marginalized and that i think is why the reaction was so intensified in the book 
is I was thinking about how the backlash to something would be intensified versus what would be a fairly small um, reaction normally. Does that make sense? That's like really abstract terms for it. No, that does make sense. It's just, again, I'm surprised you didn't realize you were writing so much about empathy. That's a very empathetic (laughs) point of view to take. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just the E word just like did not occur to me. (laughs) I think I was just like so tired of all those like articles that were like, um, they were just like how, you know, reading books can make you a more empathetic person. And part of me, and maybe I was just like, I feel like I'm getting like very pretentious. Like maybe I was already way too empathetic and like they couldn't like, but, um, but there's also a part of me that's like, I never like read a book to like, like I read books because I enjoy language and enjoy people, right? Like it's never, I don't feel like an RPG character who's like, oh, like my empathy is low. Like I better go read a book. <laughs> right. right. Like how many jewels can I earn in order to start like feeling, um, to start understanding another human being, right? Um, so that's probably why, like the the e word, um, the e word, yeah, the e word, yeah. That can be the subtitle to this conversation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's reference to hordes throughout this novel. Is this meant? I think this is kind of a fairly obvious question, but is this meant as a stand-in for what we've come to know as incels? And if it is or isn't, tell me about the choice of the word. Why horde? Yeah. I mean, horde, I was mostly like thinking of like a group of people. Um, and so the hordes that you're talking about are, are man hordes, uh, which are a phenomenon in the novel in which white men come together unconsciously and perform acts of either um, kindness or destruction. Uh, and then after they're over, the men sort of split up and they have no memory whatsoever um, of the events that have occurred. Um, And I guess when I was, I think it can be sort of related to incel culture. I was mostly, a lot of it was actually inspired by Alexander Kleeman's You Two Can Have a Body Like Mine. Um, There's a phenomenon in there called the disappearing daddies. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people in there, and I was like really drawn to that. Um, And Kleeman's book was super important to me when I was starting this. Um, So I stole a lot from that. And I think part of me was like thinking like, there's a part of me in my like draft process was like, oh, this is the exact same thing that Kleeman did. Like I need to like change this a little bit more um which is like the the most clunky like non like genius writer way to like explain it um but i think so like that was definitely part of it i was also interested in the ways i mean the manhood phenomenon and the way in which they were talked about by the media in the novel is essentially the um the boys will be boys argument taken to its extreme um in which there are people saying like you know they can't control themselves this is absolute this is just what happens how can you hold someone accountable when they are acting unconsciously um and that i think i wanted to again sort of take this question of like acculturation um to its absolute extreme like what does it mean to be um raised male in america and does that exonerate you. I, mean, I think there are sometimes those arguments can be like, you know, they were young or again, like they had like a future ahead of them, something like that. And that is used as a kind of exoneration. And I think the manhoods are meant to call attention to that by bringing it to its logical extreme and sort of um, bringing it to its absurd extreme in order to show that even when these people are acting unconsciously, um, they can create real damage, right? Even if they are acting in a way just based solely on how they have been conditioned. And I think the eventual extreme to that is what happens is 
um, the hordes end up being detrimental to the men themselves who are in them. And that I think is to me like the arc of this kind of infantilization. Um, the way that something like an incel group might be treated is just like, you know, dudes being dudes. Um, and yeah. I feel like in this conversation, I've addressed mostly the, um, uh, the, of course, this is a very gendered book, but we've been focusing a lot, or I've been focusing a lot on the masculine or the, the, the role of masculinity in it. And I think what's so interesting is you have these two main characters. One is identified as, you know, I believe a man mm-hmm. and Sasha as a woman. Um, and so you have this interplay between the way that gender is explored in their relationship. And so there's this really interesting aspect um, specifically with regards to body dysmorphia. Sasha reads as, you know, like I said, female identifying Dyson is male, on page 77, we learn about the genesis of Dyson's eating disorder. Um, in their youth, Dyson comes to Sasha, who is portrayed as someone who's more fit or, or meets more normalized and ideal beauty standards than Dyson does, let's say. So he basically asks her to teach him how she does it. Show me how to have a body like yours, he says. Sasha then reflects. What I heard, she thinks, was show me how to internalize the expectations of magazines and commercials and lip-licking men in the street. Show me how to obsess over myself, to hate myself, to see my body as something both valuable and worthless, something constantly under construction. And when I read this passage, I immediately thought of, you know, when I how when I was younger, this, that sweet naive, young, (laughs) teenage me, I was super insecure. And I remember hearing about how awful it was when men did this thing called catcalling, you know, that's a bad thing that shouldn't happen to you. But I remember in my lowest moment and in this insecure moment thinking, I sort of wish I was pretty enough to get catcalled. I've obviously changed as I've gotten older, you know, I have no remorse about this. I know exactly what this feeling is. And I feel like this interaction between Sasha and Dyson knows what this is as well wanting something so badly out of an insecurity while at the same time knowing that that thing that you want, or maybe not even knowing, but the reality of that thing that you want, not exactly being um, a place of joy, but you think it is. And it, it, it could be to you, right? Dyson just wants to feel beautiful. That's a noble who, who, can, who can't relate. Yeah. But here, Sasha being like, yeah, you, you want this role that I feel. And, and let me tell you that it's not all beautiful. Yeah, no, I, I think that's so, again, like, like super astute. And I think that that relates to me to the question of any sort of like, I mean, disordered eating is huge in this. Um, I've written essays about my own history with disordered eating. So like that um, was absolutely sort of a driving force for both the characters of Sasha and Dyson in this and exploring I guess what that reminds me of, and I think it reminds me of like a lot of what happens when the men come to the atmosphere. And what I was thinking so much about is the way in which this kind of disordered thinking, this kind of like um, self-harm thought um, is looking for a way, I mean, it's, it's aspiring towards a kind of self-love, right? And the only way that these characters know toward know how to reach that self-love is through self-harm. And because the endpoint to them seems like self-love, 
um, they find ways to normalize the actual self-harm. And I think for Dyson, that is sort of like the, um, you know, my friend is doing it, so it can't be that bad. It's a way in which Sasha says, like, plenty of women I knew have gone through things worse than Dyson, and they never died, right? Um, it's the way in which I think Dyson sort of pressures the men into eat more restrictively in a way in which I was thinking about Dyson's sort of role is like he can't individually normalize the way he is harming himself. So the only way for him to make it okay that he is doing it is to create consensus <laughs> um, and to create a way of like, you know, if everyone, if like the broader culture doesn't think it's that bad, then it's not that bad. Right. And that I think is Dyson's goal in a lot of this because he knows that he knows that he's hurting himself, but he also knows that he can't stop hurting himself. And the only way for him to continue doing it is to make it okay. Is to make like, you know, the fact that he is hurting himself not appear like self-harm. Yeah. There's this unveiling in this book that says behind, you know, perceived excellence, or I think what the French like to call it, there lies a, a wickedness. It's almost like the better something is, the seems the better something seems the darker it is do you think this is a cynical or cautious way of looking at the world and i'm asking specifically in the context of our beauty and wellness world that's constantly aiming for the sort of perceived excellence and not just like performative like this idea that you can feel good all the time and you should yeah i mean i think the idea that you can feel good all the time and you should is wrong (laughs) like i um i think that that uh, I think that idea is, is fairly toxic and like impossible to achieve, right? Um, I think it's fairly cynical to think that like the brighter something is that like, um, that it, I forget how exactly um, the phrase work that you use, um, that it like hides something much darker behind it. I mean, I don't, I don't want to believe that, right? I mean, like, I feel like there's a real sort of like skeptical version of me that is like, like that's my default mode of thinking about things. And and I really don't want that to be true about how I move to the world. I want to, I want to be gullible. I want to like believe in things. I want to have hope. I want to like, I want to believe that goop is real. You know, um, I like, I want all of that for myself. And if I get like, I, I, I think about it in, in this way, like, this is, I remember when I was teaching in grad school and like, I went to one of my like, professors who was my like you know mentor at the time I was like yeah or who was like you know overseeing my class and I was like yeah one of my students um his grandmother died so you know that's why he couldn't turn in a story and she was like she was like watch out for that excuse um and part of me was like who cares like I mean like um like like if I get tricked like like I don't that, that doesn't matter to me right um as for the questions of like you know the larger issues of wellness and whether or not we can sort of achieve a good life um, through those. Well, I have I have a sort of follow-up question, yeah, which is, yeah. do yeah. you care about self-care? What is it yeah. to you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, I was actually talking to, uh, to another person in, a, in an email interview about this. Because um, like in my acknowledgements, I, I know um, about the sort of like difficulties that I was going through in my life uh, when I was completing this book. And almost like in relationship to what we were talking about, I think before we were officially recording is that I, I normally wake up at like 6am. Uh, and when I start writing, and I think for the longest time, I believed sort of wholeheartedly in the very um, problematic myth of like, you know, the artist, like the art must sort of take over everything. Uh, and then like the rest of life, like, 
you know, I mean, I don't believe in the sort of like you can sleep when you're dead type of stuff. Um, like that seemed like one step too far. Um, but like, but maybe I can nap when I'm dead. Um, but like, um, and, and I lived that way for a long time. Right. And I was like unthinkingly miserable. Um, and like, yeah, I was producing this book and I was like, you know, churning out pages. Um, but a lot of them weren't very good. Um, you know, because like my own sort of interior state of mind was probably in a space where I just like, you know, wasn't really taking care of myself and was only focusing on, you know, the completion of this book and like only that and the sort of drive to like finish a book and which led to like, you know, problems in like friendships, relationships, like relationships with my parents, things like that, because I was just like extremely focused on art. And I think I guess I think self-care is important. I don't know if I believe in it in the sense of like, um, uh, capital or Instagram, like, um, and I think that that is, I mean, very similarly, like, which is just reminding me of like, you know, what I've been talking about with Dyson, like, I mean, Instagram self-care seems like a, um, a stand in for Dyson in a lot of ways, because it's like, you know, good ideas, but delivered in a bad way. Um, and I, I think like that, I think shortcuts are really interesting to me. Um, and as someone who read a embarrassing amount of men's health as a teenager, um, and <laughs> yeah, I wish, I wish the listeners could see your eyes, um, in reaction to that. Um, it's just, it's fully interesting. That's no, fascinating. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I, and like memorize like the, like, 128 foods for abs right and like still to this day pour the extra fat out of my natural peanut butter um because i'm convinced even though it mm. makes the peanut butter so much worse it's <laughs> so bad it's awful um, and it's so hard it's like eating cement um and but i like still do it because i'm lo looking for that shortcut that shortcut that is not giving me any sort of like care or love um but one that i think is like going to give me a better life um yeah this book read to me like a love letter to small towns even though literally no one in the book is made better for coming from coming <laughs> from having come from one can you talk yeah. about that a bit about small towns yeah is it a uh, love letter to small towns uh maybe unintentionally um i i mean i i uh I can't say this without thinking of that, uh, that I think you should leave sketch, but, um, but I, I grew up in a small town. Um, but, um, and, uh, um, but yeah, I grew up in a, a super small town in, in New Jersey. Um, and I, I mean, there was like early versions of this book were set in Oregon. Um, and eventually it got, like, I, I went to college out in Oregon. Um, so I thought it was like, this is my like formative place. And like, you know, wild, wild country was on TV and everyone was talking about it. It was like, here we go. Right. Like Colt, Oregon, ride that wave. Um, and then I just realized like, that's, there was no like heart there for me. Right. And so I think writing about small town, um, I think it's absolutely in there. And I think there's probably a certain like nostalgia for them just because that's what I like know best, especially writing about the sort of childhoods um, of the characters um, and writing about, I think when Sasha and Blake go back um, to her hometown, there's a real sort of nostalgia for that there. And I think the perceived like 
innocence that they offer. Um, and that I think is really appealing to them. But I think even in this innocence, there is a sense of like, um, not darkness, but I think like threat behind it, especially with like the ways in which, you know, Sasha talks about her hometown, like it was a town where like, you know, children were getting sick um, and it wasn't really, it was a place that they were always like trying to escape. But I think that like desire for wanting to escape can be something that like draws bonds between people that are like pretty unbreakable. Um, and if nothing else, like um, creating that sort of connection with other people based on like an existence in a small town, I think can be really, um, I won't say lovely, but I think powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. This was great. Great. Thanks. The Atmospherians is available at St. Henry Books. Go get a copy.